There's a man in Seattle, Washington, who calls himself John Doe. But apparently his real name is Edward Lightheart. He's suffering from an identity crisis. You see, on July the 30th, John or Edward or whatever his name is, he walked out of Discovery Park in Seattle and flagged down a bus driver for help. He had $600 stuck in his sock. For the last three weeks now, he's been a patient at a medical clinic. And doctors believe that he suffers from a rare case of amnesia. Since his photo was published in the Seattle Times, several folks claim to recognize him. He taught English in China. He was a New York chef. He spent some time in Europe. He grew up in Tucson. He went to college in Ohio. An estranged sister even said that he lived with her in Las Vegas earlier in the year. Well, this past Friday, Lightheart, he gave an interview. This guy's obviously well-educated. He speaks four languages, and yet he has no identity. He has very few memories of the past. Those he conjures up are sketchy at best. And in his interview, Edward Lightheart commented that over the last few weeks, he has been absolutely terrified. He's been lonely and frightened and overwhelmed. When asked if he was fostering some kind of hoax, he replied, this is one of the most hellish experiences that anybody can go through. It'll be interesting to see what happens to John slash Edward. Yet in Joshua chapter 4 and 5, the nation Israel also undergoes an identity crisis. This generation of Hebrews, they lacked any recollections of faith. You see, for 40 years, they had existed as a band of nomads. They had been wanderers without a home. Just runaway slaves looking for refuge. Like Seattle's John Doe, God's people were suffering from spiritual amnesia. They had sort of stumbled out of the wilderness, their discovery park, not knowing who they were. And they were absolutely terrified and overwhelmed. You see, these were Abraham's kids. They had a holy pedigree. God promised that they would be a great nation and inhabit a land of milk and honey. But they had forgotten who they were. They desperately needed a reminder of God's promises, a refresher on their identity as God's chosen people. You see, in today's chapters, Israel is between two miracles. They've just crossed the Jordan River. And you remember from last week what a miracle that was. They're about to conquer the city of Jericho, again, in miraculous fashion. There's a miracle behind them, and there's a miracle in front of them. A nation, three million strong, sits between two miracles, and God has work to do. He wants to solidify their memories of the former miracle. And he wants to bolster their faith for the future miracle. The time between miracles is strategic. God is going to shape his people in vital ways. Between Jordan and Jericho, God forms faith in his people. And let me suggest the situation that the Hebrews faced is not unlike the place you're in today. For most of us are between miracles. Hey, supernatural works of deliverance are in our past. (laughs) Seas have parted and kings opposing us have been dethroned and rivers have dried up. God has worked his miracles. But there are also miracles awaiting you in your future. 
big miracles, stunning miracles. God will defy the odds makers. He will do the unexpected. There are strongholds like Jericho in your life that are destined for demolition. But between the miracles, God has work to do in you. Think of chapters 4 and 5 as a pregame warm-up. My son was a kicker on his high school football team. And some games, the kicker only gets in for a few plays. And so we'd always go early so we could watch Nick warm up. He'd kick from the 20-yard line. Then he'd kick from the 30-yard line. And then he'd put it on the right hash mark. And then he'd put it on the left hash mark. And then he'd kick from the 40. And then finally he'd kick from the 50. And he'd get real daring. He'd kick from 50-plus yards out. He'd cover all the possibilities. He'd gain confidence for every scenario. What happened in the pregame warm-up prepared him for the game. Likewise, when you read chapters 4 and 5 of Joshua, do so with Jericho in view. This is the warm-up. Jericho is the game. The events that occur in chapters 4 and 5 literally take place in the shadow of Jericho's walls. You see, Israel has crossed over the Jordan, and they've camped in the plains below the gates of this mighty city. Now what happens on the West Bank, in the low country, is going to shape the nation's identity and ready them for the challenges they're going to face. As you know, we're in a series of messages that we've entitled, How to Be a Person of Influence, and we're noting the habits of influential people. Week one, we saw how Joshua was an apprentice to Moses and made preparation. Week two, we studied Rahab the harlot, an unlikely candidate for salvation. Yet when she encountered the Hebrew spies, her faith seized an opportunity. Last week, we looked at the crossing of the Jordan and how Israel overcame a huge obstacle. Hey, people of influence, they make preparation and they seize opportunities and they overcome barriers. But they also settle allegiances. In other words, they know who they are and who they serve. And they're always making statements. Joshua knew this. And this is the big lesson that God teaches Israel outside the walls of Jericho. They need to rest in God's promises and they need to settle their loyalties. If you're in the interval between miracles, God has similar work He wants to do in you. This is the time to settle your allegiances. God reminds us of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. And it's interesting the tools that he uses in these chapters. Piles of stones, sharp knives, some bread and wine, and a clash between two soldiers. Now let me summarize for you chapter 4. Joshua picks a man from each of the 12 tribes to collect a large stone, something that they had to carry on their shoulders. They're to take these large stones from the dried up riverbed and take them into the new camp that they'll make that night. Joshua is going to use these 12 stones to make a memorial. And while the waters are still standing up, Joshua takes another 12 stones And he himself forms an on-site memorial right there in the middle of the riverbed, in the camp and at the crossing. The stones remind Israel of God's power and God's faithfulness. 
The memorial stones at the camp, they encouraged the nation as they planned their future conquest. Joshua's pile of stones in the riverbed were a warning to anyone that might plot a retreat. The miraculous crossing of the Jordan River had confirmed God's hand on Joshua and it had stirred up the faith of the nation that followed him. Both piles of stones were a testimony to God's mighty hand. You remember back at the Red Sea, Israel said bye to bondage. But at the Jordan River, they said hi to blessing. Joshua's 12 stones spoke not just of exodus, but of triumph. Israel had overcome and now Blessings and victories were theirs to be won. This is why whenever someone walked past Joshua's pile of stones, they sort of thought to themselves, man, that memorial rocks. You you get it? Man, that rocks. Apparently, God used both miracles and memorials to help his people settle their allegiances. By the way, Christians too have two rocking memorials. Communion, we're going to take that this morning, and baptism. Communion and baptism help shape our identity in Christ and remind us of the miracles God worked on the cross. Well, chapter 5 now tells us what happened immediately after Israel's crossing. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. It literally sucked the wind right out of their sails. You see, these Canaanites, they had already feared the Hebrews and their God. They'd been catching the news. They knew how God had humbled the Pharaoh with ten plagues, how he had parted the Red Sea, how he had drowned Egypt's army, how he had defeated the kings east of the Jordan. But at least the river would be a buffer, so they thought. And it was flood season. It would take weeks, if not months, for Israel to cross. (laughs) But they were surprised. For the rolling up of the Jordan River happened in a day. All of a sudden, the buffer was gone. All of a sudden, there was nothing between the invading army and the walls of Jericho. These Canaanites were scared spitless. The Hebrews had supernatural help. It was obvious this was not going to be a fair fight. In verse 2, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the heel of the foreskins. I'm sure it was called the heel of the foreskins in honor of this event. I doubt if anyone called it by that name beforehand. If you go to Israel today with us, you'll notice that the landscape is covered with juniper and eucalyptus trees. They're all over the place. This may also be in memorial to this event. Get it? Juniper trees and eucalyptus trees. You get it? Circumcision. Did you hear about the Catholic priest and the Pentecostal preacher and the Jewish rabbi? They all met frequently for theological discussions. And obviously, 
the three clergymen, they believed that their way was best. So one day, they proposed a contest. They all would journey out into the woods. They would find a bear. They'd preach to the bear, and they would attempt to convert the bear. The most successful conversion would win the contest. Well, a week later, they all returned to sort of compare results. Father Flannery, his arms in a sling, he's walking on crutches. He speaks up first. He says, man, when I found a bear, I read to him the catechism. And that bear found it unbearable, and he started slapping me around. And so I had a vial of holy water, and I sprinkled it on him. And as soon as I did, it was amazing. That ferocious bear turned as docile and as gentle as a lamb. Wow. Well, preacher Billy Bob, he was in a wheelchair. Both his arms and legs were in casts, and he spoke next. He said, when I found that bear, glory, hallelujah, I preached him my best fire and brimstone sermon. We don't sprinkle, so I laid hands on him. But he must not have liked it. We wrestled up one mountain and down another until I threw that bear in the river and dunked his hairy soul, praise God. And suddenly he grew as gentle as a lamb. Wow. Well, finally, Rabbi Feinstein was rolled into the room. He was lying on a gurney with an IV drip. His whole body was in traction. The rabbi was in bad shape. But that's when he said... Well, looking back on the experience, circumcision may not have been the best way to start out with the bear. (laughs) But circumcision was exactly the way God started out with the Hebrews. The second generation had never been circumcised. And yet as far back as Abraham, this was God's mark to identify his people. As Pastor Zach explained recently, Gentiles are turtlenecks, Hebrews are v-necks. Think about that. Verse 3 tells us, <laughs> and, and this is the reason, that was Pastor Zach who explained it that way. I just, just kind of repeating him. Verse 3 tells us, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. The penalty for unbelief was death in the desert. It proves that even after we're saved, we still have to believe. Faith is never a one-time deal. We have to walk in faith. We have to grow in our faith. And trust me, circumcision was an expression of their faith. Verse 7. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Now, if you're an adult male, imagine a flint knife, not a stainless steel knife, not a titanium knife, a flint knife. No anesthesia. 
Now a little outpatient surgery. Man, I'm so skittish about these things, I'll skip a doctor's appointment to avoid a hernia check. I mean, a circumcision now is going to be painful. I can feel for these guys. And yet their reluctance to be circumcised had created a spiritual crisis. You see, circumcision to the Hebrews was not a matter of hygiene. The Hebrew rite was a mark of God's ownership. It was an identity-forging experience. To a Hebrew, circumcision was a spiritual ID, sort of like Israeli dog tags. Circumcision solidified a man's identity. It was the proof he carried in his body that he belonged to God, that he and his offspring were special. At the time, Israel did belong to God. They were his people, but without circumcision, it was a hollow claim. They were still slaves. Their failure to be circumcised had created a disconnect between them and God's promises. And and understand, what circumcision was to a Hebrew... The New Testament says that baptism is to a Christian. It's the witness that we've crossed over, that we now belong to Jesus. Did you know that in the early church when you were baptized, there was no turning back? To friends and to family and even yourself, it labeled you as a Christian. I heard of a Texas pastor recently named Jim Dennison. He was on a mission trip to East Malaysia. And at a church service, a teenage girl announced that she had given her life to Jesus. She was baptized that same night. When Dennison walked into the church, he had noticed some suitcases in the back of the room. And he asked the pastor to explain. The pastor pointed to that girl and he said, Her father said that if she was baptized a Christian, she could never go home again. And so she brought her luggage with her. Talk about settling allegiances. And this is why baptism, like circumcision, can also be painful. It's surgery. It terminates past relationships and it forges a new identity. Baptism is a humbling act that cuts back my pride. It peels back my flesh. In baptism, I renounce my self-sufficiency, what the Bible calls the flesh. All that I am is no longer enough. For the old me gets buried... I admit my need for Jesus, the power of His death, and the power of His resurrection. Baptism is a powerful experience in our lives. It helps shape our spiritual identity. It's no accident that Jesus was baptized at the very spot that the Hebrews crossed the Jordan. In John 2 verse 28, we're told that John baptized him at Bethabara, which means house of passage. It was named after the crossing. In fact, I want to take this one step further. I have a friend of mine who was circumcised as an adult. He says that it was the worst experience of his life. He was totally incapacitated. For days, his wife had to wait on him hand and foot. It took him weeks to fully recover. Now, what general in his right mind rolls his troops into the battlefield, sets up camp just outside the enemy's walls, then takes a flint knife and incapacitates all his fighting men, rendering them utterly helpless. That seems like a strange strategy. I mean, why didn't Israel take care of this little matter on the other side of the Jordan? Even with government health care, they still had 40 years to get the surgery. I mean, this is ludicrous. 
unless God is trying to teach them a lesson. You know, walk with God for a while, and you begin to realize that God has some peculiar ways. His victories are always preceded by our vulnerability. As Paul puts it, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. You see, God forces the Hebrews to be circumcised. This is a huge exposure. This is a liability. If the men of Jericho hadn't been so frightened, all they had to do was descend the slope with drawn sword and slaughter the men of Israel. Obedience to God had made Joshua's troops extremely vulnerable. And guys, this is what makes following Jesus so difficult. Any influence we weld is through weakness, not strength. It's through vulnerability, not invincibility. Don't mistake dominance for influence. A powerful personality or a forceful opinion can steamroll the will of an insecure person, but that isn't influence. That's just intimidation. Pressure only makes a weak person weaker. Genuine influence inspires and attracts and draws out and leads. It encourages people to follow willingly. It makes timid people bold. The kind of influence that God desires causes people to rise up, not roll over. And it's vulnerability that provides this influence. Our vulnerability draws people out. And causes them to want to hear what we have to say. Always remember, godly influence comes through paradox. Think of the commands of Jesus. You get when you give. You live when you die. You become great when you serve. You end up first when you're willing to be last. You're richest when you become poor. You're most honorable when you're mocked. You speak loudest. When you choose to remain silent, you become strongest when you admit your weakness. You gain life when you choose to lose it for Jesus' sake. And here it's no different. Victory comes through vulnerability. When a Christian turns the other cheek at work or forgives a person who doesn't deserve to be forgiven or or when a wife loves a, a husband who's been unlovable, Or when a wife respects her husband who hasn't earned her respect. Or when someone shows mercy when they have every right to exact revenge. Or when someone gives a tithe to God when their bills are barely getting paid. Or when someone speaks out for Jesus in a crowd of mockers. Whenever that happens, the Christian takes a risk. Whenever we obey God, we take a risk. We become vulnerable. Obeying God means dropping our guard and exposing ourselves to danger. And yet this is the cost of influence. People of influence are committed regardless. You know, next to the quarterback on the football team, the highest paid position in professional football is the left tackle. You see, most passers are right-handed. So when they drop back to pass and when they scan the field, they're back is to the left side of the line. This makes the quarterback vulnerable. He hopes that tackle blocks. 
But unless the quarterback drops his guard, unless he takes a risk, unless, unless he exposes himself to danger, his team will never advance down the field. And the same is true for people of influence. They risk vulnerability. A person who's always on the defensive never influences anyone. Notice again verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this very day. And Gilgal means rolling. The stigma the Hebrews had carried throughout their slavery in Egypt, their failure in the wilderness, it all rolled away at Gilgal. Old things were passed away. Behold, all things became new. And the same occurs in the life of a believer or in the life of a church when we're willing to risk being vulnerable and obey Jesus in what he's called us to do. Now notice what else happens at Gilgal. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. The Passover was another identity-forming experience. This Passover feast connected Israel with the faith that they had had in Egypt. This was the meal they ate the night before they were set free. It was another memorial to the miracles that God had worked and the lessons that God had taught. And what Passover was to the Hebrews, communion is to a Christian. For on the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and wine and he pointed it to his body and blood. Like the bread, his body was broken so we could be healed. And like the blood or the wine, his blood was poured out so that we could be gathered up and cleansed. Verse 11 adds, And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on that very same day. And then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Wilderness rations now come to an end. It's time for Israel to rise up and possess all that God has promised them. Now the end of chapter 5 marks a turning point for Joshua. And it happens in the life of every person who has influence for God. In these last few verses, Joshua settles his allegiances. Verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. One night, Joshua goes out on a little reconnaissance. He's scouting out the city walls. He's plotting his strategies. That's when he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This soldier was armed. He was ready for battle. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? In other words, he's fulfilling the role of a good sentry. Joshua confronts this approaching soldier. Two warriors clash. And General Joshua challenges him. Who goes there? Friend or foe? Verse 14. So he said, No. (laughs) And of course, that's not the answer to the question. I mean, Joshua doesn't ask him our yes or no question. The commander dispatched from God isn't providing the answers that Joshua wants. He goes on. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. 
whether he's a friend or a foe, is going to depend on Joshua. You see, this commander didn't give the right answer because Joshua didn't ask the right question. Never ask, is God on my side, but am I on God's side? Have you noticed that everyone today thinks that God is on their side? Have you noticed that? The Republicans appeal to a right-wing God. Democrats suggest that God is for compassion. Georgia Bulldogs pray to their God for victory. Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets pray to God for victory. Everybody thinks God is on their side. Muslim suicide bombers claim to be acting in accordance with the will of God. The Israelis who kill them praise God for their help, for his help. I mean, everybody thinks God is on their side. We need to realize that God is on his own side. God calls his own shots with us or without us. He is the commander-in-chief, not me. You see, God doesn't take sides. We choose whether we're on his side or not. So often we're hoping God adopts my agenda. In reality, God always has his own agenda. Guys, the question for us is always, am I on God's side? And this is an especially tough pill to swallow when obedience to God makes us vulnerable. For we're hoping to hear that God is all about taking care of me. God is my left tackle. He gets paid to guard my blind side. But God is nobody's left tackle. God is the coach who calls the plays. God is all about winning the game, not keeping players from tackling me. God does love me and he protects me. But God has bigger issues than me. There's a conversation in a book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Silver Chair. A little girl named Jill, she comes face to face with Aslan the lion. Lewis uses the lion in all of his books as a type of Jesus. And Jill wants to drink from a nearby stream. But Aslan, this lion, is blocking her path. That's where we pick up the conversation. Jill says, may I, could I? Would you mind going away while I drink? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. We need to get it through our thick skull that our convenience and comfort are not God's chief concerns. You know, it's safe to say that the goal in heaven today was not Sandy Adams' ease and entertainment. 
In fact, like the little girl in Lewis's story, sometimes God gets in the way of the stream from which I want to drink. Sure, God loves me. But there's more to life than meeting my needs whenever I demand that they be met. You know, this is how Kathy and I raised our kids. We love our kids. We have enjoyed taking care of our kids. But we haven't dropped everything else in our lives to do so. Just to cater to the whims of our children. Their needs are not supreme. And it does our kids no favor to treat them as if they were. At times we've put God and church and work and our marriage ahead of our kids. When we've needed sleep, we close the door and we let them cry it out. Today the kids drive the beater until they can afford a nicer car. And quite frankly, we've raised some pretty unselfish kids. You see, God's goal is also to raise unselfish kids. And I think he's embarrassed by Christian brats who go around thinking that God is always on their side. In their mind, God is obligated to support their program and ensure their success and make them happy. And if he doesn't, God has somehow let them down. Their faith wavers. They cop an attitude and begin to grumble. Hey, when did God sign on to accept your version of his will? In the coming chapters, Israel is going to be victorious over their enemies as long as they keep to God's agenda. Strike out on their own and they're going to lose. Back to verse 14. General Joshua is a military man. He respects rank. He's quick to submit to a superior. And that's why it's interesting to see how he responds to the commander. Joshua fell on his face to the earth. And worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Hey, this is the command that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Apparently it's the same person. Moses met on Sinai is the same person now that Joshua meets at Jericho. You know, though the Lord's army consists of angelic beings, we know that its leader is not an angel. For in verse 14, Joshua worships this commander. And nowhere in Scripture does a man bow down and worship an angel of God. God alone gets worshipped. That means there's only one conclusion. The commander here is the Son of God. He's Jesus Here we have a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Our Lord has come to fight the battle of Jericho. Joshua recognizes it. And he settles his allegiances. And here's the lesson grande for this morning. Whether you meet God in a craggy rock on Mount Sinai or under the palm trees in Jericho, you bow and you surrender to his will and his authority and his agenda and his joy. People of influence, they settle this in advance. There's no fuzziness or or murkiness or confusion here. They settle their allegiances, who they worship and who they are and why they live. Let me close by asking you the only question in your life that really matters. Are you truly on God's side? Father, thank you 
for your words today. We thank you for this powerful passage of Scripture. Joshua's encounter there with the commander of the Lord's army. Lord, we all at times find ourselves encountering the commander of the Lord's army, our King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to bow before you today, to once again surrender our heart and will to you. Lord, help us to to have no agenda of our own, but Lord, help us to come to you, realize the great God that you are, and bow our lives before you. Lord, it's not are you on our side, it's are we on your side. Help us, Lord, to answer that question humbly and appropriately today. We love you, Lord, so much. We thank you for loving us. And Lord, we know you're a great God and you're worthy to be served. Bless us now, Lord, as we humble our hearts and as we continue this morning by taking communion and worshiping you. In Jesus' name.